We ask that you would speak through Adam to your people this morning, and that we uh, pray that you would give us ears to hear so we can understand the word and how we should act upon it. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Um, so as we begin this morning, you notice there beginning in verse 20, we see Mordecai uh, writes a letter to all the Jews in every location throughout the Persian Empire. And again, it needs to be widespread over the course of 127 provinces. And the point then of the letter that then kind of draws our time in Esther toward our conclusion is to clarify what exactly took place and on which days the deliverance of the Lord prevailed. And then uh, based on which days he firmly fixes a holiday commemorating two distinct days. You notice, if I could just kind of walk through the text with you just briefly, as Mordecai begins verse 20, he recorded everything. Um, and then he sent letters to all of the Jews uh, throughout all of the provinces. Notice verse 21, he's uh, obliging them, obligating them to keep the 14th day and also the 15th day of that same year. Uh, and then verse 22, as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies. Uh, you notice by the time you get down through to verse 23, all of the Jews accepted what they had already begun to do. So there's two separate days we spoke of last week where war broke out on the 13th of Adar, which was a civil war within the country between the Jews and the Persians. The folks in the villages were able to battle on the 13th of Adar and overcome their enemies. Then you notice there were two days for those who were in the capital city of Susa. They waged war on the 13th and on the 14th, and then they rested on the 15th. So there needs to be some clarification on which days do we together, collectively as the people of God, what day do we commemorate as the day that we were turning our time from mourning and weeping into victory over those who despised us. Mordecai clarifies it here for us, beginning in verse 20. It will be on both the 14th and the 15th. Now, the important part here for us to understand as we wind our time down in the book of Esther, looking at the last portions of chapter 9. What proceeds here within the text beginning in verse 24, and you notice, um, notice the, the language, kind of how it changes from 23. So the Jews accepted, right? They're, they're going to celebrate the 14th and the 15th. There's no reason for the villages to do one thing and the capital city to do another. Across 127 provinces, we'll all acknowledge the same days of holidays. The Jews accepted this practice. Yes, let's do it. Then notice, it says they accepted what they had already started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamaditha, you know, the enemy of the Jews. And then the story begins to kind of be retold or, 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 or uh, uh, kind of recaptured for everyone to know what exactly took place over what we have studied for the course of, I don't know, perhaps a year now, beginning in chapter 1. The story is essentially retold. So what proceeds beginning in verse 24 is not a direct quotation of what Mordecai wrote to the Jews across 127 provinces. We don't have the letter that Mordecai wrote. We don't know. Obviously, there's information here that helps understand what was on it, but we're not looking at a direct quotation here of Mordecai's letter. Rather, there's a recapturing of everything that had been told and everything that took place across this story 
of what is now the book of Esther. We're looking simply here after verse 24 of a summary of all the historical events which proceeded uh, throughout the course of the battle for the Jews within the Persian Empire. So what we have then as we kind of work towards the end of chapter 9 is a return by the author now to the contemporary moment of the original audience. Notice again in verse 26, therefore they called these days Purim, after the term Pur. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter and of what they had faced in the matter, and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and all of their offspring to keep these days perpetually. You see, the reason the author is leaving behind the storied context, we simply don't have more of the story unfolding, but rather we have a recapturing of what has already occurred, is because the author is making an immediate apologetic for the current and perpetual practice of the days of Purim. One author makes sense of it this way, shedding light on it, says the author here is simply telling the story of Esther and Mordecai yet again. But why? To say to the contemporaries, see, this is why we continue to celebrate the days of Purim. So that future generations can commemorate the momentous deliverance that has permitted each successive generation to exist. You see, what is in the end here in the book is that there has been some distance between the original members of that battle, the civil war that took place and the actual hand of deliverance that was for them. And there's been a distance. Now, how long that distance is, we're unsure because we're unsure of the dating of the book. If we were to draw maybe a rough analogy, we could say something like um, the 4th of July. Perhaps it's time when you tell your children at some point or someone who is not familiar with the situation, why are all the American flags being on discount today at Ace Hardware? What's the deal with all the fireworks? Why are we all getting together? Why, are, why do you have an extra day off from work? Um, well, again, if I could tell you this story. So see, we were under British rule, and then we came to the continent of the U.S., and what took place was, and you're telling them, to justify why we celebrate today the 4th of July. Uh, that is what's happening in chapter 9, but it's significantly speaking of the days of Purim. Folks have just lost the connection. Why are we doing this? The days of Purim. Yeah, 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 but, but, but what are the days of Purim? They're the days when our time of mourning was turned into great victory. We pledged under Mordecai that we would never let these days fall into disuse. But we would always remember them, us and our children after us, and the children after our children's children. Perpetually, we would observe the days of Purim as a time of tremendous deliverance, a story we must never forget. That's what we have in chapter 9 is the author telling the story to a later generation. You see, this is what happened. Mordecai did this, and then he didn't bow down, and then this whole thing took place. And then there was a casting of lots on the day that they would attack the Jews and annihilate all of us, to which the story of Purim is still told, utilizing the book of Esther among the Jews today. Given the call in the text of verse 9 for Purim to exist in perpetuity, 
Notice for uh, how it's spoken of in verse 28, that these days should be remembered and, and, and kept throughout all or every generation, every clan, every province, every city, that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days ever cease among their descendants. Given the call then, as a Christian reader, given the call for the days of Purim to exist in perpetuity and to be observed by the Jewish people for all generations throughout all of time. Perhaps an important question for us to ask and answer this morning, just for a few more minutes together, is why don't Christians today, that is believers, the people of God of the New Testament, of the New Covenant, why don't we celebrate the days of Purim? Why don't we observe the festive days of God's deliverance of his covenant people? Have you ever asked yourself that when you see other cultural elements within the Jewish community? And then you think uh, maybe a parallel account would be something like the days of Hanukkah. You ever thought to yourself like, yeah, so Hanukkah, the festive of lights, and then the acts of deliverance of the Jewish people. And here we have the days of Purim as we see in the text of Holy Scripture. And you recall Hanukkah, the deliverance of the Jewish people, took place in the intertestamental period. It's not recorded in the text of Holy Scripture. It, between the close of the Old Testament and the open of the New, they're in the Jewish revolts against the Greeks. But yet here you have the days of Purim, and you see them here, and maybe you ask the question, why don't we, the people of God, of the New Covenant, why aren't we celebrating or acknowledging the days of Purim? Should we be observing this tremendous act of the Lord's deliverance? Well, the answer to that question that I would like to ask and to answer this morning just for the next few moments as we consider the days of Purim, because this is the closeout of the book of Esther. These days must never be forgotten. And already by the close of chapter 8, the writing of chapter 9, there is a gap of space where these days have kind of, sort of been forgotten. And so there's an apologetic written in chapter 9 to say, okay, this is what the story is about. We can't forget this. And so the question of Christianity at our moment, this time, as we read the text of Holy Scripture, receiving both the Old and New Covenants as the word of God to his people, should Christians be celebrating the days of Purim? Or do we? Is it under a different name? How do we relate to the days of Purim as the New Covenant people of God? So first, we need to consider more broadly We'll answer the question in two, uh, two ways. One, just for the beginning portion, we'll consider the question more broadly. And the question, uh, so you're considering, the, uh, as you're trying to apply the text of chapter 9 to your own life, and to the life of the church, of the people of God, of the new covenant, to say, how do we relate to the days of Purim? And should we be acknowledging them and celebrating them? Or what is my connection more broadly? to God's promises, institutions, and practices of the Old Testament text as a New Testament Christian. So I want to answer that firstly. To consider more broadly, that is, how we as Christians gathered on the Lord's Day relate. Have you ever, maybe some of you are reading through the Old Testament now. You've begun your new, the year's resolution of reading through the entirety of the Bible. You're going to come across a ton of practices in the Old Testament. Uh, promises and institutions. Have you ever paused and say, how do I relate to these? How do I make use of them? What is the application in my life and what is held for me here therein? Well, I want to answer that briefly. First, again, we need to consider more broadly how Christians relate all together to the practices, promises, and institutions of the Old Testament. 
And then secondly, we'll, so if we can establish the broader principle of how we read these passages and how we apply them to our lives as God's people of the New Testament, then more narrowly we'll take and consider the days of Purim here in this text. Or you could say even beyond the days of Purim, you could say, maybe I have another question. I would think maybe about the days of Hanukkah. What's my relationship to these events of the Jewish people as a New Testament Christian? But for us, we'll particularly consider the days of Purim since that's the text we're considering this morning. Question number one, then, that I hope to answer as we just consider just for a few moments as these days of Purim were never to fall away from the people of God. They were to never fall into disuse ever, but always and perpetually to be acknowledged and to celebrate the festive days where God delivered his people. The question is, again, how does the Christian relate to the practices, promises, and institutions of the Old Testament text? The answer, again, can come at from a number of angles as we walk through the answer, but I simply will provide you a direct answer, and then I hope to justify that answer to you in clarity. The answer is simply this. We as Christians relate to the old covenant institutions, practices, and promises through the completed work of Jesus Christ. This is significant for you in, in, in your reading. This is significant for you in the application of the Old Testament text to your own life. Because again, you don't want to be a, a whatever letter Christian, a certain color, or, or you, you don't want to be a New Testament Christian, any of that kind of stuff. You're a Christian. And so all scripture is God-breathed, is profitable for my correction, for my instruction, for my reproof, for my nourishment. I'm a Christian. I rejoice over all 66 canonical books that God has given me as a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. So, but, but I admit I have questions. How do then I receive, relate, and rejoice over what I find in the Old Testament text as a member of his church? Well, Again, we as his people celebrate all of his words, celebrate all of his practices, his promises, his institutions throughout redemptive history as we relate to them through the completed work of Jesus Christ. Let me explain that a little further. Paul expresses it, and I know you've read this text, probably heard sermons on it. If I could just remind you where we see something so clear and, and so confidently, so boldly, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, as he's expounding on the gospel, he reminds us, the people of God, the church at Corinth, as we receive these words, he says, folks, for all the promises of God, that's some of them, and so the churches are hearing Paul and reading his letter. They're thinking, promises, sure, all of the glorious promises that he has made to his people throughout redemptive history. How many of them shall I receive? How many of them can I rest upon? All of them. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. They find their terminal point. They, 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 they find their end for which they were instituted 
in the Lord Jesus Christ. In his life that he lived in obedience, in the life that he laid down and was taken, in the life that was raised and now is our mediator. What does he mediate to us but his blessed promises? You see, we as New Testament Christians, the church of Jesus Christ, we are simply no longer in the time of the Old Testament text in redemptive history. We, meaning, we're no longer in the time of types. And you read about those in the text. As you think of the institution of the sacrificial system. And then you read the book of Hebrews. And you're strengthened to find that that pointed to him. To Jesus whom you rest upon and receive all of by the empty vessel of faith. I relate to those stories. I receive of those institutions through the person and work of my Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. For all of those promises and institutions find their terminal point in him. And me in him and he in me. For we are no longer in the types of Old Testament types or shadows. Or the time of ceremonies. Rather, we have come to the time of fulfillment through the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That will lead us to our time at the table. He is our bread. He is our wine. You see, so when we think of the days of Purim, and we're reading in other institutions and promises and practices of the Old Covenant text, as you begin your reading, as I say, I am going to try, I always make it to Genesis 15 in my methods, and then I peter out. But again, blessed is the man who stops and starts 10,000 times. But as I read these texts, I'm going to be reminded that God's word in the Old Testament is a word about the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the nature, the essence of Holy Scripture. All Scripture is Christian Scripture. I could speak of it in numerous ways. You remember, and you might want to jot this down for later uh, meditation and consideration, read the text of John 5. Jesus in a dispute, right? And, 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 and the claim is consistently throughout the Gospels. Abraham is our father. I don't know what you guys got going on, but Abraham is our father. And then there's a dispute. No, Abraham is not your father. He has to be. We're Jewish people. No, there, there's a distinction to be carefully considered there between who truly is a child of Abraham. Uh, and, and, then, and then he speaks. And then they, 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 in John 5, there's a dispute over Moses. And Jesus says, but you don't believe in what Moses has stated. And they're like, how dare you? Of course we do. And he says, but you don't. Why? Because if you, if you truly believed what Moses has written, you would believe in me. How is that the case? No, I didn't see your name there. Because Moses wrote about me. It, 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 it took some preaching, some teaching, some clarification, the work of the Holy Spirit. But our Lord also, you recall, and we were able to walk through the book of Luke for a season of time here at Redeemer. It was a wonderful time, a tremendous gospel account. But you remember at the end in the road of Emmaus, and uh, the disciples are dejected and, and, and discouraged. Of course they would be. 
don't read the text and think you wouldn't have. You would have been. It, it makes sense because sometimes we can read it and think, how could they have been? Didn't they understand? No. No. And neither do we. And neither would we. So here they are, kind of burdened and discouraged as they're walking the road to the mass and our Lord appears to them. Again, struggling with where is the Lord? He, he has died by Roman crucifixion. Oh, I just wish something would have told us about these events. And so our Lord then appears to them in the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, verses 44 and 45. I simply read it for you. He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. To them, and we're like, see guys, this is what he was telling you all along. No, it's unfair as readers. This is what I told you. And then he goes on, and, and here is my point with you in this text. He says, everything must be fulfilled that is written about me. This is what I told you when I was still with you. Men, everything must be fulfilled that was written about me in the law of Moses, in the prophets, and in the Psalms. Everything. Again, if you were to think, well, okay, so Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, you realize he's just describing at that time what was on the ground in terms of the Old Testament text of Holy Scripture. It's meaning that's your threefold division of the Old, uh, Old Testament. Psalms and, and Moses and the writings of wisdom. Of the prophets. Then he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. Meaning, understanding the scriptures, beloved, means understanding that Jesus is at the center of them. Everything that has been written about me must be fulfilled. And then as we think of how we relate through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ to everything that was written in promises and institutions and covenants and in practices, everything has been fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. How then do I unite to them? I unite to him. And by uniting to him through faith, I unite to the promises myself. I read the promises that invigorate my faith nourish my soul, and strengthen my heart as I think of my own needs of deliverance. I read of the days of Purim and I see Christ. I see as it speaks through physical deliverance to push me on, to indeed physical deliverance is meaningful. But I also realize I need more than physical deliverance I need the ultimate deliverance that is provided and fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, if we were to return, let's say we return to the elements of practices and the promises as though they have yet to be fulfilled, and we return to the Old Covenant institutions, if we return to these elements that were fixed in the Old Covenant text and Old Covenant history, having come to its fruition and fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ, but we return to it, we go back underneath it. The writer of Hebrews warns us to return to such festivals is to fall, beloved, away from the gospel. It's to give primary place to a shadow 
when the substance has come. Christians relate to the Old Testament covenants, promises, institutions, and practices through the obedient life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. This, the ongoing celebrations within the Jewish community obviously miss. Now that's most broadly the principle, simply on to number two then. The second question deals, so first, if I consider the Lord Jesus Christ the center of all this promises, whereby I'm united to him through the empty vessel of faith, and therein I'm then united to the fulfillment of those promises on my behalf. The question still remains yet. Let's describe the events of Purim. Let's consider the nature of the promises of Purim themselves. In other words, where do the days of Purim go in redemptive history? If they were recorded here in uh, Esther 9, where did they go? By the time we get to the New Testament, do we see the days of Purim? Or, or, or what exactly took place? Or what is the nature of the days of Purim that are never to fall into disuse? What is the nature of the days of Purim? Number two, the days of Purim. This is an important piece that we need to grasp in this text, and then I'll work towards my conclusion with you. Number two, the days of Purim themselves, as you see here, instituted by Mordecai and by Queen Esther, are not instituted by God. But are rather days simply instituted by the civil magistrate. It's important that we understand this piece. If you jump down to verse 29 of chapter 9, you'll notice, again, there's a recap of the events beginning in verse 24, and it takes us all the way up as an apologetic for the days of Purim. But then you'll notice where the days of Purim are clearly instituted, beginning in verse uh, 20, uh, 29. Then Esther, the daughter of Abihel, and Mordecai the Jew, gave full authority, confirming uh, the days of Purim, or confirming this second letter about Purim. Then the letters were sent to all the Jews uh, to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Hasuerus in the words of peace and in truth, that these days of Purim should be observed in their appointed seasons. And then once again, it notes Mordecai the Jew and Esther uh, the queen obligated them. Uh, and uh, as they obligated themselves and their offspring with regards to fastings and their lamenting, the command of Queen Esther confirmed these practices of Purim and it was recorded in writing. You see, the nature of the days of Purim are simply civil. They are not ordained holy days, even here in Esther 9. Esther authorizes the days of Purim, uh, not by divine appointment, but rather in her capacity as queen. That's noted very carefully by the writer, nonetheless, in verse 29. It's Queen Esther all the way through, down through the end of verse 32. In her capacity as queen, she authorizes the days of Purim to be acknowledged. Mordecai is very similar. Mordecai is authorizing the days of Purim as an administrative official within the Persian Empire. Simply meaning, the days of Purim, even then, were simply a civil holiday rather than a God-ordained holy day. I'll add one more piece to that as you think about, again, should these days be perpetually kept as unto God? 
Sure, can you commemorate other days? I mentioned the 4th of July as another historical marker for points of deliverance and warfare and overcoming the establishment of a nation. Sure, you're gonna acknowledge these various aspects, but we shouldn't confuse historical days of significance with holy days set aside for worship. I'll note for you one last piece as I work towards my conclusion then, as to the days of Purim, particularly speaking, notice what's taking place on the days of Purim for the people of God. If you look at verse 22, you notice um, the days were turned from them as the days which the Jews got relief and their enemies uh, from their enemies, and as a month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness, from mourning into a holiday, and that being a civil holiday, not a day of worship. It goes on, and, and this is how we see it, that they should make them days of what? Feasting and gladness, days of sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. Notice what's absent in the days of Purim. There is no praying. There is no preaching. There is no singing. Beloved, there's not even a formal giving of thanks even mentioned. Again, we could, we could maybe say, well, you know, I, I think it, it probably took place and maybe some of these things did take place in that day. Maybe it's just not herein recorded. Maybe those weren't. Maybe. I think what we have here is a continuation where the book began is where the book ends. There's a question lingering over the book of Esther regarding the secularization of the Jews in the Persian Empire. There's no word of God offered, we've covered that throughout the course of the book. His name is not mentioned. We've looked at Mordecai as an individual. We've considered the life of Esther very carefully. Um, here there is a day of deliverance and it will be commemorated by force of the civil magistrate. But there is no worship. There is no prayer. There is no singing there is no giving of thanks. I conclude with you this way as I, I think about what we see in the book of Esther altogether and uh, the deliverance that God has provided and we, his people, of how we respond from his time of deliverance in our lives individually. I, I, I speak, you know, maybe uh, a lowercase d deliverance, various aspects in, in providence where you experience your needs being met times where you're in a difficult spot and you seek the Lord through prayer and he answers and provides. I think what we can see in our own prayer lives and the acts of God's deliverance on our behalf is the same measure of fickleness as maybe we see here at the end of the celebration of Purim. We quickly forget what God has done on our behalf. I bet you we could look at our own lives and thankfully we all don't have to air out what we might see in each other's lives. That's, that's a, I think, a healthy thing for all of us. But I think if we look at our own lives introspectively, I think we'll see that same measure of fickleness about the Lord's deliverance in our lives. We might ask one another, where was the prayer of thanksgiving? Where was the song that led your family to sing and to praise? In the response for the Lord delivered. But I, I watched your family pray about this for two months straight and I saw the Lord answer and so did you. But we all just moved on. And maybe we talked about it and we're like, can you believe that? Yeah, I can. Yeah, I can. 
I want to, I want my faith to arise and indeed to believe that. He is for me in these things. And I as his covenant member and his son in the faith or daughter in the faith through the Lord Jesus Christ, my eldest brother. Indeed, he is for me and he delivers me regularly in his kind providence. You see, in conclusion then, the days of Purim are secular days of gladness and remembrance for temporal deliverance. Hanukkah shares this nature. Beloved, remember, God uses acts of temporal providential deliverance to direct our hearts and our minds and to raise our faith to a fuller deliverance he has provided. The cross of Jesus Christ is God's fullest act of deliverance on our behalf. It is something meaningful in the temporal and it delivers on into the eternal. If we miss the cross of Christ, we miss absolutely everything. Let us pray. Father, we humbly come before you as your people, leaning upon your word that you have spoken and so we receive. You speak and we listen. We, we want to hear your word. We want to receive your word. We want to be transformed by your word. Right now we admit many fickle natures, our simple sin, our brittle nature, that we pray and we seek in earnest for two minutes and then you deliver with an outstretched arm days later and we move on and can't believe the coincidence. Oh God, forgive us of our sin. We pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that our Savior, that you would wash and rinse us anew, that, that we would seek earnestly and, and we would give thanks, that you have heard the prayers of your people in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you have answered and delivered. And so we give thanks and praise and honor and sing songs of remembrance. We encourage the church of Jesus Christ, one another in the faith, as pilgrims on the way. He does answer prayer. But not just simply vaguely. Something happened. No, God acted on our behalf. Let us give you thanks. Thank you for the cross of Jesus Christ and the deliverance from our greatest enemy, our own sin. Bless us now, Lord, as we look to your table to once again remember the Lord Jesus Christ, his body and his blood. In Jesus' name then we pray. Amen.